0: We're going to be in Psalm 125. Uh, About, uh, it was probably about a year, maybe a year and a half after we had our first child, our daughter. I had a phone conversation with a a friend of mine who wanted to sell me life insurance. I I thought we were like just catching up. I, I thought we'd just have a long conversation, but... But he cut to the chase pretty quick. And so he started asking, if I remember that conversation correctly, he started asking me various questions. He he said things like, so tell me about your health. And then he started getting even more personal. He's like, tell me about your parents' health, your grandparents' health. What about about your level of stress? Do, Do you have a will? How much money do you have in your bank account? And then he just kind of went fully there. He said, okay, what would happen to your wife and daughter if you were to die? I said, well, I didn't really have a plan. And then he came back and said, well, does that concern you? I said, it hadn't five minutes ago. Now, what my friend was doing is he was as I think every life insurance agent would do, he's, he's exposing insecurities because he wants to sell me security, right? This is how insurance works, right? I mean, I'm not in the insurance business. Some of you are, so I'm going to tread lightly. But basically, insurance is the selling of peace of mind, right? That's even the tagline of an insurance company. We sell peace of mind. So, so we get insurance for our houses, our cars, for our lives, because in doing so, we can rest assured that come what may, we're going to have peace of mind. We'll be covered. Well, insurance companies capitalize on this insecurity, but, but really it's a, human in, it's a human condition, right? All of us, at various times, to various degrees, feel insecure. Right? There's financial insecurities. There's life insecurities. Right? This season has, I think, produced many feelings of insecurity. And so insurance comes along and says, if you buy this, you'll have more peace of mind. We got you covered. In biblical times, there was a lot of insecurity as well. It's a little bit different. But, but think about it. It was a, more of an agricultural society. And I'm not a farmer, I'm, I'm a city boy, but, but, but if you were a farmer, I've been told you could do all the right things. Sometimes, even doing all the right things, the harvest doesn't come. Think about that sort of insecurity year in and year out. This is a human condition, that the feelings, the experience, the potential insecurities that all of us have to navigate day in and day out year after year we are because we're human insecure so 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 where can we find lasting insecurity lasting security in the midst of our insecurity where, where can we find that sort of security if we know that it's not found in geico where can true spiritual security be found because that is the deepest insecurity in all of our lives. It's not just financial. Our greatest and deepest, the, 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 big, the most historic insecurity in all of our lives has to do with our relationship with God. How can we be secure in him? How can we know if we're secure in God? In the midst of all of our sin, what sort of security, what, what sort of assurance do you have? That God will save you, forgive you, love, care for you. Where can we find security in insecure days? Well, today we're going to look at Psalm 125. We're going to continue our study in the book of Psalms. And we've been studying a collection of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent's. Now, these 15 psalms were psalms sung by pilgrims as they, they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem at various times throughout the year. You know, think of Pentecost. Think of those sorts of feasts. And so these psalms were collected, put together, intentionally as pilgrim psalms. Songs sung by pilgrims. And in this short psalm, it's only five verses, in this short psalm, We find where we can have everlasting security. So let me give you the big idea in a rhyme. All right? Rhymes are fun. Maybe it'll burrow deep inside your mind and heart. So this is the big idea. God's people can find security because, here's the rhyme, God grounds and surrounds, he thwarts evil, and good he brings his people. You're welcome. All right? But before we unpack that, let's, let's read our text today. Psalm 125. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. All right, now go back to verse 1. We'll work our way through this text by the end. Verse 1, we have this, this call, right? This this sort of call to trust. But there's a description here, right? There's a description of those who trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are, are like a mountain. A particular mountain. Mount Zion. right? The, the mountain at, at the heart of Jerusalem, where, where Jerusalem sits on and the temple sits on, those who trust in the God, shorthand for Those who trust in the covenantal promises of God. Those who have put their faith in God, the church, the people of God. They are like Mount Zion. And they stand firm, right? This sort of image, this idea that God's people cannot be shaken, they are grounded, they cannot move. It's an image and a description, a sort of metaphor that is far greater than insurance. This is about assurance. It's about God's assurance to his people that they're going to stand firm. And, and just look at the time frame. right? We see it in verse 1 and 2. Cannot be shaken, but abides forever. Then if you go on to verse 2. For this time forth and forevermore, God's people have found everlasting assurance. But but notice what isn't said, right? I I think in some ways we we might expect something like this, this, that the psalmist would say, those who trust in the Lord are like the temple. Or those who trust in the Lord are like Jerusalem. Or those who trust in the Lord are like the ark but that's not what's said. It's those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, the the foundation, the the sort of unmovable foundation of those other things. The, The temple would fall. The ark would be lost. Jerusalem destroyed. Mount Zion, not going to be shaken. Jeremiah the prophet addresses this actually in his book. In his day, there, there's, there's all this insecurity. You know, nations surrounding, there's, there's impending doom. And some of his day, especially priests, came to him and said, we're good. We're good because we got the temple. The temple stands means we're good. And Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. Your security is not found in the temple. Right? Right? The the Helm's Deep, we could say, of Jeremiah's day was the temple. But just as Helm's Deep fell in the Lord of the Rings, so the temple would be destroyed. That's not where God's people could find their ultimate security. The temple was merely false hope, false security. We have a natural propensity to do this. When we're feeling insecure... We go looking for security. We go looking for various insurance policies. I think especially spiritually speaking, right? When we think about an assurance that God will forgive us, that God loves us, that God will save us, well, we we say sometimes things like, well, I know that those are true. I know that I'm good with God because I got confirmed as a kid. Or I'm good Because when I was a youth, I walked down an aisle or I had some experience at a youth camp. I think spiritually speaking, one of the ways in which we find our security most naturally is in experiences, right? Those mystical experiences, those times where we felt connected to God and we think, well, I felt connected to God here or I had this experience of God there and therefore my assurance is tethered to these various experiences. I think even children can do this with their parents' faith, right? That they can tether their own assurance that God loves them because their parents love God. Well, in Jeremiah's time, he was reminding God's people, don't find your security in the temple. No, no, no. N- not in its brick-and-mortar essence. And in many ways, I think the warning for us this morning is the same. Right? We can't find our assurance in God's love for us, saving love for us, redeeming love for us in experience. Not even in the membership of a local church, as, as I think true and biblical as membership is, that is not Ultimately, strong enough to give us security with our relationship with God. We need something bigger. And verse two tells us where we can find that security. Look, look at verse two. Verse two says, that "The mountains, they surround Jerusalem." Right? As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this day forth and forevermore. Right? So, so you had Jerusalem in the middle, and then you had a saucer of mountains all around Jerusalem. God's people, Mount Zion, the mountains surrounding Mount Zion, that's God. God grounds, and God surrounds. God brings security to his people by his overwhelming surrounding presence. Just think of it. If any nation wanted to get to Mount Zion, if it wanted to get to Jerusalem, they had to get through those mountains. If anyone wants to get to the church, not literally, metaphorically, right? They had to get through those mountains. And God is saying, I'm those mountains. That's a level of security that is on a whole new level. Better than ADT, God's saying, I am your security. I surround you. That's why you can't be moved. That's why you can't be shaken. It's me. Some of you might know the old prayer of St. Patrick. It's probably not. He probably didn't actually say it, but it's attributed to him. And I think in many ways, it is a perfect, almost a perfect exposition of, of Psalm 125, right? It starts off, may Christ shield or may Christ secure me today. And then we read this, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth Of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. That's security. That's the sort of security that this psalmist is talking about. Security in God who surrounds and envelops and wraps his sovereign arms around the church. It's not a mystical experience. It's God himself who secures God's people throughout any trial, suffering, or hardship. Now, now how is this security felt? Like, th- that's great as like an abstract idea that God surrounds us, but h- how is that experience on a day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year way? Uh, well, I think in many ways. I mean, sometimes it's an experience of God you just feel his presence. But, but I think more than that, it's felt through the church. It's felt as we gather, right? When we're singing to each other. We, when we gather to sing, we don't just sing to God, we're singing to each other. And I'm hearing Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ all around me. But then we experience Christ's presence, God's surrounding presence, when we show up in each other's lives. Around the dinner table, around small groups, when we go on walks, when, when we share our doubts, when we share our insecurities, and our brothers and sisters time and time again point us to the slayer of those insecurities, God himself. All insurance policies, right? right ultimately they default. Right? They, they don't cover everything. But God's assurance to you is that he surrounds you with his love his care, and his sovereign arms. Now, but that's not enough. That's just half of it, right? God's people can find security because God grounds and surrounds. But second, let's look at this. Let's look at verse 3 through through verse 5. Second, you can find security because he thwarts evil and good he brings to his people. Look at verse 3 with me. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Right? That the scepter of wickedness, evil, it will not ultimately and finally rest on the righteous. Lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. In, In other words, God, evil, wickedness, darkness, doom, hell, will not ultimately rest on the righteous. For if it would, Or if it did, many would fall away. That's the point there of verse 3. It's the assurance that evil, wickedness, will not ultimately fall on the righteous. But we learn a few things about wickedness in verse 3 that I just want to point out to us. We learn that wickedness has a scepter. Now, a scepter is sort of weird. I I assume that President Biden doesn't have like a a scepter stashed away somewhere in the Oval Office. But my English friends tell me that the Queen has a scepter somewhere. And that scepter is a sign of her regal power and authority. And here we find out that wickedness has a scepter. In other words, wickedness, evil, evil. It has some level of authority. It has some level of power in the world. Now, the the second thing I just want to point out is that wickedness and evil has sort of this ability to corrupt. That's the second half of verse 3. Evil's always perverting a good. That's what evil does, right? Evil takes something good and then just twists it. I don't know if you ever thought of this, but, but you could take any sin you find in your Bibles, any sin, and you could reverse engineer it and find a good somewhere far back, right? You take the sin of gluttony, just work backwards, and you find it's the twisting of the good gift of food. You take the sin of gossip, reverse engineer it, go back and you find the good gift of words, of talking, meant to build up, but in gossip, it's to tear down. What evil does is it takes a good and twists it, disfigures it, sometimes slightly, sometimes enormously, and therein lies the trap of evil. Jesus himself talks about this. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 24, we read, um, we read in, in John, but, but Jesus in Matthew 24 says this, and he's talking about sort of the, the age to come, the end of the age. And he says that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Then verse 12. And because lawlessness, because wickedness, because evil, because darkness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. That's the power of evil. And since the days of Jesus, we have seen throughout history signs of the truth of this prophecy, right? Signs of the corrupting influence of wickedness in the hearts of men and women, in our society. I mean, the Apostle John wrote this in the last book of the Bible, right? In the book of Revelation, he, he, he's writing to the, uh, the church in Ephesus, and they're going through all of this suffering, all these trials, all these temptations, which he commends to them. But then he says this, you have neglected, you have forgotten your first love. Your heart for Jesus has grown cold. That's what wickedness, that's what suffering, that's what evil can do. It can cool the heart and devotion and love for Jesus. And yet in the midst of this, verse 3, there's a promise. And it really is the main idea here in verse 3. It's a promise that the scepter of wickedness will not fully and finally rest on the righteous. Now we'll talk about who the righteous are in a second, but... But, but what this author is doing is he's actually going back to Genesis and he's claiming one of the great Old Testament promises. It's the Old Testament promise in Genesis 49, verse 10. We read this. The scepter will not depart from Judah. There's that word, the scepter. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. So here we have this pilgrim, and he's feeling insecure, right? He's on his journey, he's feeling insecure in real time, right? He knows that God surrounds him, but he also knows that evil is surrounding him as well, right? He's holding those two realities in tension. And he remembers this promise. This great Old Testament promise that the scepter of wickedness will be crushed by another scepter. The scepter wielded by the true Son, the righteous Son. And at that, the nations will fall in obedience. A, a scepter that will judge some as righteous and a scepter that will judge others as unrighteous or as crooked, right? We, we see that in verse 5. But, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. The God of Israel had determined from old to raise up a ruler who would bring breast, blessing and peace And do so to all nations because that son would wield a scepter more powerful than the scepter of wickedness. That's what verse 3 is saying. Verse 3 is saying that there would come a day when a scepter wielding son would come, and we know that he has come. It's Jesus, King Jesus, who protects his people. By himself, being overcome by wickedness to the point of death. He wielded his scepter by dying on a cross, ever banishing wickedness. Now, wickedness comes, right? We live in the overage, kind of the overlapping of the ages. Wickedness is going to come. But verse 3 says it's not going to rest fully and finally on the righteous. Wickedness will come, but it can't rest on the people of God fully and finally. Wickedness might bend you. Wickedness can't break you. Wickedness might mock you, but because of Jesus Christ, wickedness can never condemn you. Wickedness may cause illness in your heart. It can never poison your heart. Because in the gospel, we have, we have a new heart. That is God's promised assurance policy over the righteous, over his people. That wickedness will, will never overtake them. Now, 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 maybe you're wondering, okay, so that seems pretty clear in verse 3, but who are the righteous? I mean, I'm guessing if I took a straw poll, we'd all say, yeah, well, that, I don't think that's me, right? And doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that no one is righteous? Not one? So, so who are the righteous of Psalm 21 that have such assurance, that can claim this promise that wickedness will not rest on them? Well, do you, do you remember Abraham? Abraham who is called out by God and God tells Abraham gives him these wonderful promises and it says of Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness was Abraham righteous at that moment well in one sense no he was he was a pagan but in the truest sense he was righteous because his righteousness was credited to him. It was put on him because he believed God and God's promises. You see, the righteous in the Bible are not those who just abstractly believe in God. Demons believe in God. No, no, no. The, the, the righteous are not those who just believe in God. The righteous are those who believe God and his redemptive promises in Jesus Christ. That's who the righteous are. There are those who, as verse 1 says, are trusting in the Lord. Trusting that the Lord is who the Lord says he is. And one of the things the Lord has said that he will do is send that scepter-wielding, serpent-crushing king to end one day fully and final all evil. You see, the gospel isn't that you purchase your righteousness or you purchase your security like you would an insurance policy. No, the gospel says that you can't. But if you believe that God is who he says he is, and you turn to him and believe that Jesus died and that his righteousness can be yours through the gift of faith, then you are, in the truest sense, righteous And this promise is for you. And I think this is why the the psalmist sort of ends with a prayer. Do you notice this? Verse 4. Verse 4 is a prayer, right? Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. In some ways, I think the greatest insecurity in all of our lives is death, isn't it? It's our death or it's the death of our loved ones. That's one of our gravest insecurities. It's it's why life insurance, I'm guessing, will continue to do quite well. Because it is an insecurity that we all have. And so here we have our psalmist praying Do good, Lord. Do good to those who are upright in hearts. A few years ago, I was at my parents' house for Christmas, and a man came to drop off a Christmas present, I think maybe it was the day before Christmas, and this man was a recent retired pastor, a faithful pastor who pastored College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. Some of you know of the ministry Simeon Trust. It's been a blessing here at this church. Well, he started it and by god's providence he moved next door to my parents and so he was coming to drop off a christmas present but but just a week earlier his granddaughter was walking home from school or something and a man was driving and had a stroke lost control of the car and hit her and killed her and so my mom as you know we were all talking my mom you know paid her condolences and Said, I'm so sorry to hear about your granddaughter. How are you doing? We're praying for you. And, and, and this retired pastor said, No, we're doing well. Thank you for your prayers. And then having given this gift, he he turned and walked out into the winter cold, snowy night. But he didn't get more than seven feet away before he stopped and he turned. And he looked back right before we shut the door. He looked back and with tears in his eyes, he said, You know what? I still believe God's good. In many ways, I think it's easy to say God is good when things are going good. It's easy to praise God and say, You are good when you get the promotion when all seems to be going right in your life. But on those sorts of days, when you get those phone calls you wish you didn't get, when you experience not just the highs, but the lows of life, when you're experiencing tragedy and suffering, can you say, as this retired pastor said, God is yet good. Not sometimes, not most times, all times. I think that's why this psalm ends with peace. The feeling of security in the midst of insecure times, because this pilgrim knew that regardless of what happens, God surrounded him, meaning he was present with him, Evil may wound him, might even take his body, but could never take his soul. He found peace to say, God is good all the times. You want to have that sort of security in life? You want to be like that buoy in the ocean that though the waves come and it bobs back and forth, it still never sinks? you want to be like Mount Zion? Unshakable, regardless of what comes. Well, Psalm 25 tells us where to find that security. Insurance policies always have the fine print, right? We rarely read it. Well, Psalm 25 is the fine print, and the fine print about where you can find your security is in God. He grounds us, he assures us, he surrounds us, and he promises that evil and wickedness and darkness and trial and temptation will not overcome, will not rest, ultimately, finally, on the righteous, all those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You want peace of mind? That's where you can find it. Let, let's, let's pray. God, we um, we know that there are, there are so many things that we turn to, that we look for when we're feeling insecure. And to be honest, we live in this broken world and there are very many things that make us insecure. But Lord, we pray that we wouldn't turn to ourselves, our ingenuity. We turn to you. And we find our Our security in you, our assurance that you're with us, present with us. And the promise that we found in Jesus Christ when he conquered our sin on our behalf. But We're thankful for your grace and mercy. We're thankful for your faithfulness. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.